Well, let's go ahead and uh, start with the word of prayer. Dave, would you open us? Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we can get together and uh, just learn from your word and learn from uh, wise instruction. And we thank you for this opportunity. Help us to be hearers of the word and doers as well. We ask this in your name. Amen. I remembered the quiz this week, so uh, let's go ahead and... So what were our two aims of systematic theology? I had to establish a biblical worldview. I don't know if that was one or not. Okay, yeah. Right. That was one? That's the second one. Okay. Collection of synthesis of all biblical data about God to form a coherent network of truth. Okay, so collect and synthesize everything in the Bible about us, you know, all of its major topics. And then, secondly, Dave, to to take it and, and have it say more than... It, have it say more than it says. You know, it, it speaks to things beyond itself, and so you you create a, a a worldview that is a biblical worldview that speaks beyond itself. Uh, so so yes, you picked up on both of those ideas, and we'll we'll try and do both. And I think it's one of those things that the first the first class you don't see it as much, uh, but as you work your way through, you see more and more networking going on. And hopefully, that'll be something we uh, we. You, you all experience here. It's sort of a eureka kind of a thing when you start seeing it all fit together. So, Okay, I think that's uh, well done there. So Wesleyan Quadrilateral, what are these three norms that compete with the Bible? Motion, reason, and tradition. Okay. Experience. Reason, yeah, experience. But, experience but probably, probably experience a little bit better word than emotion, but you you're on the you're on the you're on the same trajectory there, certainly. I had the word reason and I wrote theology. And there's nothing wrong with these ideas. There's nothing wrong with experience, nothing wrong with reason, nothing wrong with tradition. Um, you've got a you've got a doctrinal statement here and it borrows probably I assume liberally from other doctrinal statements and, and creeds and confessions that have been written over the years. Uh, and that's not a bad thing. It's not as though we have to reinvent all all the points of theology for every generation. Uh, but uh, the, 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 the danger is when the tradition sort of takes the place of the scriptures. I've, I've got a couple of systematic theologies back in my office. They're reformed and they're and they and they're, they're set up after the Westminster Confession. As you work your way through it, you have this uncomfortable feeling that when they reference the WCC WCC eighteen point one or whatever it is, that it's got almost the same the same the same weight as pulling out a Bible verse, and that, and that's that's the concern uh, that the tradition can can stand on its own as an independent authority. Um, again, okay. So, so then the question I believe leads to number three: Are theology and science enemies? No. Well, well, they often conflict. So, why is it that they conflict? The natural worldview as opposed to the Christian. Yeah, God. very good. Yeah, very good. Yeah, because there, there's nothing wrong with the mechanics of science and the mechanics of reason uh, these are these are well 
the mechanics of reason are part of the image of God. The mechanics of science are are natural laws that He's established in the world uh, to that that operate smoothly and cleanly, so that we can figure things out. At the same time, what 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 uh, you know. It's it's not the uh, mechanics of reason, the mechanics of science that are at issue. It's it's the premises. Okay, what from what from what point of view are you arguing? And, and you, your point very well taken. Oftentimes, it's the naturalistic worldview that you know, nature, because of its uniformity, we 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 develop what's effectively another religion, which is uniformitarianism. That everything is always routine because that that is the norm, and if the Bible violates that norm of uniformity and says, "Oh, somebody rose from the dead," which can't happen, then then we start to question it, and any number of miracles and such. And that I mean that's really out of the heart of the fundamentalist modernist controversy back to the turn of the last century. Uh, there there was there was no Ability to uh, to to integrate the the resurrection, the virgin birth, and uh, the miracles of Christ and such into uh, the scientific worldview, and so they were jettisoned because reason came to dominate the system and uh, to norm scripture, which cannot be normed. Okay, so I think we have a pretty good handle of what we got done last week. We didn't get much done, so the question for you is so. <laughs> Okay, any thoughts or questions? <clears throat> I was able to listen to okay, good. that online. So, so it worked out yeah. well? Yeah. Okay. It worked out very well. Uh, Larry set up the set page. I just cut the audio. So. Well, I don't think uh, he probably looked at the old page. Oh, my page? I just got the Dropbox. Oh, he just okay. looked the Dropbox okay. because Larry has now, I think, set up the. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I went to Dropbox. <clears> the new one, yeah. Okay. The audio file. Okay. That, yeah, you there put were two in. of the first. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just, Larry's trying to set up a more uh, complete kind of page sort of setup. But all we need is the Dropbox mm-hmm. ultimately right now. Okay. Well. We got through that one fairly quickly this time, so let's see if we can't make some progress tonight. Uh, we'll talk talking a little bit more about these competing sources of theology, see if we can't tease out some of the details here. Uh, we talked last time about science uh, as, a, as a competing source of theology. Tonight, I believe we left off with uh, reason. Is that right? Is that right? I have a mark there. So again, like we said... Uh, just now, the idea of reason or being rational is part of the image of God. It functions as a tool for receiving, correlating, communicating revelation. This contrasts with rationalism. That's the concern, which holds that the mind is an independent and, in fact, the ultimate source of truth. Note the following that J.I. Packer has, has said in Fundamentalism the Word of God. Reason's part is to act as the servant of the written word, seeking independence on the spirit to interpret scripture scripturally, to correlate its teaching and to discern its application to all parts of life. We may not look to reason to tell us whether scripture is right in what it says. Reason is not in any sense competent to pass such a judgment. Instead, 
we must look to scripture to tell us whether reason is right in what it thinks on the subjects with which reason deals. I think that's a, that's a, that's a well, it's very, very well put, okay? We're trying to read scripture scripturally, let scripture interpret itself, and it establishes its own standards here of, of rationality and reason, okay? So reason like language is always going to be used when we, uh, formulate Bible doctrine. We can no longer say reason is bad than we can say language is bad. Language is simply a tool whereby we communicate systematic theology. They're not at odds with one another. Christian God is a God of reason. His words may successfully be harmonized. We can even extrapolate theological corollaries and applicational inferences from God's word on that basis that exceed the sum of its parts. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about some of those things say we'll uh, for instance when we get into the doctrine of scripture uh, we'll talk about preservation and the the scriptural basis for the doctrine of preservation is thin okay at least in terms of proof texts might be a handful there but even even the ones that I'm going to say I think probably work only work for portions of it so it's in fact, there are some who would argue there is no biblical doctrine of preservation. Uh, nonetheless, I think we can build a doctrine of the preservation of Scripture that is that is quite sturdy because we've taken bits and pieces of the Scriptures, combined them together, and and made and made the Scriptures say more than they specifically say in their in their actual words. I mean, we'll, we'll we'll get to some of those as we get to it. And that's part of what we do in systematic theology. We're trying to build models to explain things that are perhaps less than perfectly explained in the in the detailed letters and words of what are said. For instance, the doctrine of the Trinity. I mean there's there's no there's no unpacking of the doctrine of the Trinity in the scripture. Words not used. And so we're so how do we how did how did they argue for a century over the details of the Trinity. Well, they were putting the pieces together. That's what we're going to have to do at at points along the way. And we're going to use reason. There are going to be reasonable connections that we draw. However, reason cannot stand independently in judgment over the truth claims of Scripture so as determine their validity. Right reason always rests on a standard that the natural man cannot embrace. And so... Man can never reason to God independently of God. They'll always come to different conclusions. And so when they look, uh, for instance, at uh, uh, the uh, example in Second Peter, you know, Jesus isn't coming again. Is the is the argument that's being made by the by the enemies of the people of God that Peter's writing to? Jesus isn't coming again. Their argument is. That, that doesn't happen. You know, you know, Jesus doesn't pop into the sky. It's never happened before. And, you know, Peter tries to answer this. And his, his, his answer is, well, just because it has never happened before doesn't mean it can't happen. Okay? And he exposes the, the faulty foundations of their reason, that things happen as they have from the beginning of creation. He says... Uh, and he points out one that's not true. 
things have not always happened the same way. So you're flawed in your logic. However, he all he basically adds that just because it hasn't ever happened that way is, is no guarantee uh, that uh, it it won't. Uh, it's kind of like you know, investing in the stock market, right? <laughs> if you put money in the stock, there's no past performance is no guarantee of of of. Of the, of, the, of the future success. I'm so, sorry, I'm bringing up sore, sore topic. Yeah. <laughs> you tell me that now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and so Peter points out that the, the reasoning is flawed, and the reason it's flawed is because they have, have a bent against God. There cannot be a divine explanation of things, because that's the one thing we can't accept. And so for that reason, their reasoning is skewed. So the pure rationalist, the pure uh, verificationist apologist, that is, someone who has to verify or corroborate the, the Bible through archaeology and through geology and historicity and all that, they argue that like other sciences, integrative theology works with interrelated criteria of truth, such as logical non-contradiction, etc., accepting only those hypotheses upon testing are discovered to be non-contradictory, supported by adequate evidence, and affirmable without hypocrisy. This is a this is a, a an evangelical systematic theology. What he means by that is we 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 really accept what is true based on these things, rather than what what the scriptures happen to say. You know these. This, these, these non-contradictory kinds of things. I, 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 it reminds me of something that B.B. Uh, Warfield said. You know, we we don't accept the Bible at face value. Uh, we don't start using it immediately. We have to have the Bible first corroborated to us by external means before we take our stand in it, which is a troubling way of, of thinking. It's a, it elevates reason much too high. Okay, Warfield was a brilliant man, but I think he got that point wrong. Okay. So this is putting man's wisdom to it? It effectively says that we have to corroborate the Bible like we we, we apply the scientific method to the Bible like we do any other you know area of study. Okay, so if we you know we, we we make a hypothesis and we, we we test it, can it be repeated? Can it be can we can it be observed and so on and so forth? And those things that can pass the tests of the scientific method then move from hypothesis to you know the you know what's the next is theory and then fact and then so, so, the so creationist science is trying to do this instead of just believe the simple fact of the scripture? Well, there's two kinds of creationist science. Yeah, and that's that's an interesting topic. Um, uh, for instance, um, Answers in Genesis, down Kentucky, they've got that big setup down there. Uh, when, they, when they started out, they were deliberately opposed to this approach. Uh, the, 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 their goal was to, you know, help Christians to be able to understand how everything fits together um, and give alternate explanations to that which people were learning in the public school and all that. They weren't trying to convince people that the Bible was true. Uh, but some of your other approaches, now ICR, for instance, Inter- uh, Institute for Creation Research, does a little bit more of 
the the sort of evangelistic variety of of creation science. So they're trying to prove that the Bible is true. So there are there are there's you know yeah creation science is not all one of is all, all of a kind. So yeah, so I am I am arguing against a kind of creation science. And, but not against another. I don't know if that, that even makes was that yeah, clear as mud. It's trying to, they're trying to say our science is going to prove that the Bible's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was interesting. There's a I don't know if any of you have you ever been down to the museum. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, so on the outside there's this line that says "Prepare to believe." Okay, there's a there's a story behind that. The, the basically the architect that put the whole thing together. Um, I'm acquainted with him. He works for nine years putting this thing together. And at, at the last second, they decide they're going to put this logo, prepare to believe, on it. And, he's, and he said, that's that's contrary to the, the message of Answers in Genesis um, that we've had for all these years. You, you can't you can't you can't have people come in here, look at this data, and now believe. It doesn't work that way because of depravity. And ultimately, he 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 quits his job because they insisted that the words be put on there. That's why I say, that's why I say, answers in Genesis may not be quite as as purist as they as they once were. But I think R.C. Sproul said that like apologetics and proofs, their their goal they'll never save anybody, but their goal is to put to silence people so that the gospel can be preached. And that's and that's true. I think that's something we sometimes can do is put out brush fires, and some some people won't stop and listen to the gospel until they can get an answer a, a, an answer to their question. Um, I think that's you know pre- be prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within you, and it would include expand to that. Uh, at the same time, I think what we have in like Proverbs twenty six four and five that that sort of explains our response to the fool. Answer the fool according to his folly, lest he become smug. Okay? Uh, that's my own, my own little twist on, on the words there. So, do give an answer to them, or uh, because he might be smug if he thinks you don't have an answer. Okay? But then the second verse is, don't answer the fool according to his folly, or to become like him yourself. Okay? Uh, I think that does give us some instruction on how to approach this. Give the answer, but don't but don't keep trying to prove and prove and prove because it's you'll end up into the in the uh, in the into the pig pen with them and it's just it's going to turn out ugly. You know the statements you made you quoted uh, Warfield as saying we've got to prove the Bible. I forgot the exact word you used. True before we can take our stand. Take our stand. It's funny because a couple of fellows here, we were in that Herman Hughes class from the Master's College, Master's Seminary. And some of the, we were doing hermeneutics, but I told you, I think I told you this, that some of the articles were by Gerstner. And they were really on apologetics. And remember, I objected. And yeah. one of the things, that's what he was, he said, he said that he, he was quoting Warfield. I didn't realize he was quoting Warfield <laughs> word for word there, but remember, he had a whole section on there okay. saying, we've got to prove the Bible. Is true, and then we'll get the natural man to, to look at the Bible, and, which was surprising coming from the master's seminary because yeah, they're, not, yeah, they're not, they're not, they should be presuppositional, and that was a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. 
Sorry, list some of the tensions with the approach of being of rationalism. It assumes neutral authority that's independent of and above Scripture. You know, the reason can norm Scripture. Uh, reason stands above it and says, no, 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 that can't be true. Let's scribble those words out. Second, it applies a faulty standard for correspondence in establishing truth. What is truth? That which conforms to what reality as we've observed it. Okay, Rather than a correspondence that says truth is that which God would say of a, of, of, of a given thing. So elevates coherence over correspondence. Remember, we talked about those terms. Uh, it's it's more important that the uh, that the that the truth system agree with itself than that it agree with God. Now, ultimately, it has to do both. Uh, but the cons- the greater concern in a in a rationalist approach or re- in a, 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 a rationalist approach is to is that it agree with itself rather than agree with God. Third, it ag- ignores the noetic effects of sin, depravity. Man not only makes errors in his observation and reasoning due to ignorance, and Scripture speaks of that, he does so willingly and culpably. So he not only makes mistakes, he deliberately makes mistakes sometimes because he cannot embrace the possibility of God. And so, you know, you, you you let an unbeliever stand in judgment over the Scriptures, and he's going to say this is unreasonable and dismiss it. If you explain no edict from no edict, uh, well, you ever heard the word uh, nuthetic? Okay, it, it's it, it's the idea of the the noose, the mind. Okay, so it's a Greek word, the noose, and so the noetic effects of sin are the effects of sin on the mind. The reason I said it is because most people I've encountered, they think of the Noah. They they think when they noetic. Oh. <laughs> And when I encounter, they think noetic, noetic, Noah. You know, it's it's from the Greek word nous, mind. So it's it's the depravity, the effect of depravity. Right, right. But it uses this technical term that is not understood often. I didn't understand it. Yeah, okay. other than from context. Yeah. yeah. Fourth here, fourth reason why we can't let reason stand in judgment over Scripture is because it neglects the doctrine of divine incomprehensibility. There are certain things about God that we can't explain. It doesn't mean they're unreasonable. I don't even want to talk about them being supralogical. But there are some things that we just don't understand about God. And if we are insistent that human reason stand in judgment over what God is and has said and does, then we're always going to run into trouble. So, so all of these all of these factors here are such that you you cannot allow reason to stand in judgment over the Bible. Okay. The next three in our list here are related, uh, and these are, if I can, I'm, I'm sort of an, you know, unpacking the experience aspect of the Wesleyan quadrilateral, and and there's there's a number of sort of nuanced approaches to that. The first of these I want to call mysticism. I'm going to throw in a few other words here too that you sometimes hear that I want to sort of lump together with mysticism, pietism and quietism. Let me just define mysticism and then we'll we'll see what we mean by it. Mysticism, according to Erickson, is a form of religious practice that seeks direct knowledge of God rather than a discursive or intellectual knowledge of him. So, 
bypass the hard work of reading your scriptures and understanding them, correlating them. Just wait for a message from God. Okay, direct knowledge of God. In mysticism, systematic and practical theology are informed not only by scripture, but also and especially by inward influences, such as, but not limited to, verbal revelation, God speaks to me, euphoric utterance, speaking in tongues or, or other such nonsense, and other forms of normative leading and guidance, usually intuited by non-sensory means, by some sort of passive union with God. Okay, so I, you know, I, you know, the Lord spoke to me. Oh, I didn't hear it. You know, uh, so so it's 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 something that's internal, something that's private, uh, uh, non-sensory. I just I just felt a burden from God, or I felt a peace about doing something. Okay, as a source of theology, mysticism is problematic, and there are a lot of people hold whether 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 they do so knowingly or 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 with understanding they 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 fashion a lot of their theology based on what they imagine God to have told them what's wrong with this well mysticism first of all is totally subjective lacks any authoritative internal or external controls rendering it extremely vulnerable to abuse. Okay, if I, if I can always appeal to God, nobody can ever tell me I'm wrong. Ever. Okay, I mean, the classic example here is that you're arguing over the, the, the new color of the carpet in the auditorium. You don't have carpet in your auditorium, do you? So, but, uh, you know, well, God told me it's supposed to be blue. Well, God told me it's supposed to be green. Well, how can you argue with that? I mean, uh, how can you say, well, God didn't tell you that? Well, yeah, he did. Prove he didn't. Well, <laughs> and so it's, 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 it's not verifiable, which I think is, is the point in Second Peter 1 uh, when he talks about how the scriptures came. Uh, he's, he's in the midst of talking about why he's confident about the second coming of Christ. You know, he's... He goes through some some pretty good arguments. He says, "I first of all, I'm I'm an apostle." You know, he says, "I'm an apostle," and and so I, Jesus Christ told this to me. He said, second, I, I had an I, I had an experience." Okay, so so he, oftentimes we think that's the pinnacle of what how we can know something. He said, "I, I saw the transfiguration of Jesus Christ." He says, "Yeah," and. And if you look at the context there, the transfiguration is rather interesting. Jesus has just told the disciples, you know, sell everything you have, give up everything in this world for my sake and the gospel, and uh, you'll get it back. And perhaps he looked around and saw the disciples. Hmm, that's a pretty big commitment. And he and so he assures them. He says, not too many in a few days from now. Some some of you will actually see the kingdom. Okay, seven days later, next next chapter starts. Seven days later, he took three of them up into the mountain, and, and he was transfigured in front of them. Okay, and the story goes on. Peter's like, "Wow, let's build some tents for the people over there." And and Jesus is like, "You missed the point here." And so God comes over in a cloud over top of them and explains the point. Okay. Because you saw a glimpse 
into kingdom life, the kind of people who will be there in the kingdom with Christ transfigured before you. Uh, Because this is true, you've got a window into the kingdom. Listen to what Jesus says. This is my, my son. Listen to him. Listen to what he says about giving up things in this world for the next. Because you've got a window into the next. And so you know. And then he goes on to say, I've got a third argument. A third argument made more sure that you need to pay attention to. And you say, well, what could be possibly more more, more compelling than that? And he says, it's the scriptures. You need to pay attention to it until the kingdom comes. You must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation or origin, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so he says, you don't even need to take my word for it or have to have, you know, have to have an experience like mine. You've got the Bible. The Bible's better. It's it's propositional truth. Okay? And he says, we don't want to have something that's built strictly on private revelation, he says. Something that's of private origin, he says. Uh, and, and, and suggests here, then, that the scriptures uh, are more sure, are, are, are more reliable, even, than an eyewitness account could be. Thirdly here, mysticism effectively denies that the scriptures are the believer's sole and final authority. Okay, Certainly that. I mean, if God is giving me private messages in addition to the scripture, I think we can say that the Bible is not the believer's sole or final authority. But let's keep, keep going. It also argues that the scriptures aren't sufficient. Because God has to supplement what he has said in his word in order for me to know what's up. And thirdly, there's an argument, I think, ultimately, that the canon is not closed. Perhaps perhaps we're stretching a little bit to come to that conclusion here. Uh, For instance, Wayne Grudem, who believes that there are messages that God can give New Testament prophets that are ongoing today. You can get a message from God. He says, the Bible is closed... But in order to make that argument, he has to say that any revelation that God gives after the fact has the potential for being errant. Okay. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get the direct quote later on in the, in the notes here. Uh, and I, I think that it's the, the only way he can, he can keep his canon closed is by inserting error in the present-day prophetic revelations. Well, I'm, I'm here to say that there are no revelations ongoing. We have the scriptures, the canon, that is closed and sufficient and is our sole authority for all matters of faith and practice. Okay, And mysticism, I think, violates all of those. I do make one little caveat here, because perhaps some of you are thinking, well... Doesn't the Holy Spirit sort of help me along as I'm as I'm reading the Bible? Is that is that mysticism now? And so I suggest here that mysticism is distinguished from God's work of illumination. 
In mysticism, God miraculously imparts new information to a mind that a person could have by no other means. So it's a source of theology. But that's not what illumination is. We'll talk about it more later. But in illumination, God providentially causes the renewed mind to appreciate and effectively apply information that he has already supplied in Scripture. It's not properly a source of theology, but a new capacity that the Holy Spirit gives to us to embrace, to synthesize, and to apply the Scriptures. Okay, so uh, the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, don't think of that as revelatory, that we're getting new revelation from God, or finding something in the Bible that you couldn't have could could never have found with with ordinary eyes. Okay, uh, illumination is is not a miraculous thing. It's just it's a matter of the Holy Spirit causing you to embrace and to accept uh, what the Bible says is true. It it opens your eyes to the authority that's there, uh, rather than giving you new info, new authoritative information. Does that make sense? Does that follow? Okay. experience is similar to mysticism in that it's private rather than a public source of theology. But the distinction here is that there's no revelation. So I've had an experience, not necessarily some revelation from God, but I had an experience that informs the way I live. Primary areas of influence here uh, include issues such as speaking in tongues, miraculous healings, demonic activity, but are not limited to these. Okay? Um, so for it, it, let me let me just put out some some things where where experience might impact the way we look at theology. Uh, when I teach a class in, on uh, on uh, man and sin, we have a question that I have a question that I sometimes that I often will ask. And uh, when I teach institute up at up at the uh, up at the church uh, inner city. It's usually a mixed group, men and women together. And I ask the I ask a question uh, each time I've I've done that. And I ask, how many of you think it's possible that babies go to hell? Okay, interesting question. Um, I have yet to have a woman raise her hand. Okay, now I've never had one, and I've, I've done it at least a half dozen times. Never had a woman raise her hand. But quite regular. In fact, I think in every class I've ever taught, at least some of the men are like, maybe, <laughs> you, know, you know. It's it's and and and, and it's it's interesting. Why, now, why is that the case? Why why is it the case that men are like well, maybe, but no woman has ever said that in the at least in the classes I've taught. I'm sure there's some 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 and don't give birth. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Women have had an experience, particularly mothers, have had experiences with children, with babies, and they've gone through the process of uh, birthing the child and nurturing the child and caring for the child, and there is and it's it's inconceivable because of that experience to even consider the possibility that babies might go to hell. Okay, we're not here to answer that question tonight, but 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 you can see how experience an experience might affect how you how you uh, answer that question. Okay, uh, I think particularly when we're talking about uh, the liberation theology and the, the theology of the oppressed, 
these are these are theologies that are built out of the experiences of certain people groups. And as a result, there are conclusions that are drawn by these groups that you say, you know, that's not what the Bible says. Yes, but our experience tells us that that should never have happened that way. Okay. Um, yeah. Church polity is, is sometimes an area of, okay, we, we're going to practice church discipline. Okay. We're going to, we're going to bring up a person in the, in the whole congregation and inform the congregation that that person has sinned and that they need to repent of their sin and invite the rest of the, the congregation to be a part of the process. Well, if you've been in many church struggles over the years, you say, no, that, we probably shouldn't do that. It, that that's going to end badly. I, I've, I've been in that situation, and it's blown up in the church. So let's not go through that again. Let's 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 have the pastor deal with this behind closed doors and sort of shuffle the guy away. Well, why did we come to that conclusion? Because of an experience we had. Um, so rather than looking at Matthew 18 to find out exactly how God says this is the way it's supposed to be done, we say, you know, experience tells me that's not a good idea. Okay, so 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 it, it's it's not just something here that's just some sort of loopy people who 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 hear her voices in the night. Okay, these are the kinds of things that happen in regular churches, ordinary churches like this one. Um, our, our experience informs how we do our theology. So hopefully that makes some sense. So what's the problem here? Well, experiences can be sourced in forces other than the divine. I mean, I. I I, so I had an experience where somebody jabbered in the front of the front of the church, or maybe I jabbered. You know, I, I don't I don't know what I was saying. I was just saying gobbledygook. I've spoken tongues. Okay, so you've concluded that that was God, huh? Why? Why, why did you conclude that was God? So experiences can be sourced in forces other than divine. Experiences result from any number of worldview-specific interpretations that are not normative. Now, it's it's impossible to question an experience, but it's always appropriate to question the interpretation of the experience, right? Okay. So someone had an ex- had an had an experience where, you know, they yeah they had cancer. And so they went to the healer. And the healer said, be healed. And lo and behold, the cancer was gone. Okay. Well, maybe there's other explanations other than the healer is responsible for the healing. Okay. So there's other interpretations of the experience. Can't deny the experience. Yeah, the, the, he had cancer. He doesn't have cancer. Something happened there. Was it a miraculous healing? Maybe. Maybe it most most people who go to the healer went to the doctor first, and so perhaps something that the doctor did is is the cause of the healing. And the experiences are also private and unverifiable, and sustain no mechanism for mediating between conflicting experiences. Okay, the same as the uh, area above. Okay, so experiences should not be informing our theology. 
next point here is existentialism, which is perhaps a little bit more out there. In New Orthodoxy, the decisive source of theology for the individual is a moment of encounter of time with eternity. This is when God touches eternity. They say that the, God cannot adequately reveal himself through finite means, such as a book, the Bible. And so in order to have, have, uh, have any sources, any sense of validity or certainty about what one believes, you have to have a private encounter with God. Okay? Now the Bible may be the source of encounter, so you read the Bible, the Bible's filled with stories of people who've had their encounter with God, so this might be something that would stimulate your encounter with God, but you're ultimately not looking at the Bible as as revelation from God, but rather what people have written about their experiences with God. Okay? Um, and uh, and so there, there's a you say well this this is this is really weird this is wacky but but the fact is almost probably most of your neighbors will appeal to some sort of existential kind of a private experience as the explanation for why they believe what they believe and for that reason they feel that they don't have to talk to you because everyone has their own private experience and you can't tell me that my experience isn't the right one or that I, I misinterpreted my experience. I had my experience. You had your experience. Leave me alone. Okay. They, they just had some sort of, you know, event that happened. And uh, from that point on, they've, they've determined their theology and you can't talk them out of them. Well, yes, you can't. How do you do that? By, by pointing out that their authority source is wrong. Their authority source is wrong. Does that make sense? What's the difference between that and mysticism? Well, mysticism is more... When I, when I talk about mysticism, we're usually talking about some sort of a direct, direct transmission of information from God. Something propositional. Words come from God. God told me X. God told me Y. And so I did. Whereas, uh, whereas the existentialism is more of a a mystical experience I had. Uh, no words, if I can put it that way. So the a good, the best a good uh, the best example of well, one example of mysticism are quietism. There it was Quakers. Yeah. So if you think about the Quaker religion, that's exactly what Quakers believe. You just sit around and wait. God speaks to you. You don't need the scriptures. And so that when he uses that term quietism, if you read a lot of literature, as you read literature and stuff, you'll see a lot of people, orthodox people, will say, well, that's quietism. That's quiet. It's, it's, a, it's a pejorative term for experience or just, that, you know, looking for an experience. But Quakers formalize that. Right. <laughs> they formalize that into a religion. Hillary Clinton was talking about becoming a Quaker minister. You remember that? Did you ever read that? Oh, okay. But anyway, she's pretty messed. Quakerism is the is how that. Works. Well, you're familiar with how that works. Yeah. If you if you ever been to a Quaker service, uh, we I grew up I grew up in Quakertown. That's, that's my my hometown. Quakertown. Yeah, and they had a big, very very old Quaker church there, uh, hundreds of years old. It was in Pennsylvania, and. Uh, um, 
you could go to a service there, and women sit on one side, men on the other, and there's no minister. And basically, once the time comes, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, whenever the service is supposed to start, it just gets quiet. And it's quiet until someone gets a word from God, and they stand up and speak. And 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 that's how the service service goes until you know it's there's God's not telling anybody anything anymore and then they're they're done. But, but that's an extreme. Yes, yeah, an extreme form. But you can this thing moves right down into evangelicalism. So like Plymouth Brethren. Plymouth Brethren have kind of a similar thing. You know, I think about the uh, S. Lewis Johnson's what was that name? Believers Chapel. There was a famous teacher at Dallas Theological Seminary, S. Lewis Johnson, a New Testament scholar, but he he had a church, Plymouth Brethren kind of church in in, uh, Dallas. But on the Sunday evening thing, you would just come and sit around and somebody would give a word or something. The Lord spoke to me, you know. So it was that experiential thing runs through all kinds of evangelicalism, you know. Well, yeah, and, and you you give you give testimony time in, mm-hmm. in, the, in the church, and you're going to hear that yeah. kind of language. Well, the Lord told me. Yeah, the Lord the told Lord me. Lord impressed upon my mm-hmm. heart. The, mm-hmm. uh, okay, I, and you don't you don't stand up and correct them. Yeah, at least not directly. Don't we set ourselves up for that when we talk about we're having our quiet time and our? Now, sometimes perhaps. I mean. It, but that quiet—that's a different use of quiet. Yes. That just means be still, listen to the word. Yeah. You know, yeah. But I mean, I think I don't know. Maybe as well, long as I think more. Perhaps some people think of those I'm thinking terms. Like, I'm thinking a lot of this stuff, and maybe I'm thinking of women. Yeah. One a lot of the books that they read, and like my wife's had before, and she's like, man, eh, she'll toss it. But it's sort of like, you know, well, there is a lot of that, that in all kinds of evangelical listeners. List, you know, you God is speaking to you apart from Scripture. Mm-hmm. Or, I was thinking about inner city one time before you came, the church, the, the seminary. One time a guy came. We were, we were Dr. Rice, who was the pastor there before, hardly ever had testimonies. But one one Wednesday night when I was first there, he had a testimony. And some guy came in and gave a testimony and said, Dr. Rice, you're a false prophet. And he starts going. <laughs> I think about three or four or five guys came and carried the guy out. <laughs> <laughs> no testimonies well, after that, huh? <laughs> well, that, I mean, that, when I was at Northland, that we had some pretty bizarre testimonies. Oh, yeah. I remember one fellow who who was praying for a job during the summer to pay a school bill, and the, and the Lord told him to go apply to be a bouncer at the bar. <laughs> and God gave him this job as a bouncer at the bar. There's a whole up front. How is he going to extricate himself from this one? Well, he always, you know how he always, he always managed to do it. But, <laughs> but hey, could you could you give just three minutes on explaining neo orthodoxy? Because you used that term. Yeah, I did. What is neo orthodoxy? Tell me. Well, I sort of, ex- I sort of explained it, it there. Okay. You know when I explain okay. the history of neo orthodoxy. Yeah. Okay. Quickly. Okay. Well, liberalism. Is what dominates the end of the 19th century. Liberalism, uh, liberalism is 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 a purely rationalistic approach to religion. Okay, and so little by little, the rationalists, the modernists, as they're sometimes called, were bludgeoning the Bible, breaking it apart, and ripping out its 
it's, it's and they're Egypt. controlling the domination. They're controlling the dominations, and so the Bible is is untrue. It's filled with myths. It's it's and it, it can't be trusted. And and little by little, I mean, the, the word is basically being annihilated. Uh, their their understanding of God was that He was a God close at hand. There's nothing ineffable or distant about Him. Um, and as liberalism starts to reach its climax, there's there's almost there there is it was there religion had as this is what Schleiermacher said um, religion had its cultured despisers okay and he had to rescue religion from its cultured despisers okay um, and how is he going to rescue religion the the Christian religion religion from all these modernists that are basically destroying it okay and. Uh, and as the as the as time moves on, new orthodoxy became one of the answers to how they were going to rescue religion from its cultured despisers, and and the answer was that the Bible is not true, but that doesn't matter. Okay, uh, so the Bible is filled with stories. Uh, some of them are true, some of them are not. It's it's incidental. Um, what what we what we have here is is a, a collection of explanations of people's encounter with God. Okay, and the goal here is to have an encounter with God that is super logical, totally other, with a God who does not dwell in this realm of science. Okay, he's above it. He's beyond it. And so we want to have some sort of a, a, an encounter with him. So time touches eternity, the, the spiritual touches the material, and religion becomes a matter of, of experience rather than of revelation. Okay? I don't know if that... And, and, but, but the thing is, he, he's... he's uh, New Orthodoxy sounded good. It has an elevated view of God. It sort of rescues, you know, it, it rescues the, the Bible from the people who were savaging it. Okay? And so it's got a high view of scripture, it's got a high view of God, and so there's a lot of, there's a lot of attractiveness, even, even today, among evangelicals, because there is, there is a, there is, there's a certain, uh, high view of God and scripture that's there. But it, I think it forfeits everything we need to, you know, you know, Put our feet down firmly on, and that's the the inerrancy and an absolute authority of the scriptures. So you've heard of names like Karl Barth, probably. Yeah. So and you would say the liberalism just said there's no such thing as sin. Mm-hmm. New Orthodoxy says yes, there is sin. Mm-hmm. So it believes in sin, depravity. Man needs to be saved. He even, even talks about election. Election. But the point is, the Bible is not taken as. Uh, as an accurate source of authority, right. you know, that's something to talk about true myth. So there was no man named Adam; he had no wife named Eve. But that story in Genesis says man is a sinner. So although the Bible's not true, Moses didn't write Genesis. That story tells us truth, doesn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it tells us that man is sinful. And so New Orthodoxy comes along. What were the twenties, thirties? And so these same liberal schools, Harvard and Yale and, and seminaries that were liberal, start adopting neo-orthodoxy. 
And so they sound a lot of times to conservatives. This even invaded the Southern Baptist Convention. So the, some of the seminaries of the Southern Baptist Convention, you had neo-Orthodox people. And the people in the pew, <laughs> that sounds, oh, well, they believe in sin. They believe in the Bible. And it's very deceptive, isn't it? It sounds very pious. Very pious. But ultimately, it'll destroy the truth. You know. Turns religion into an experience. So it's a formalized, uh, uh, it's a, we talk, you're talking about experience. It's a formalized religious experience kind of thing. I'm thinking of churches that call their morning worship an experience. <laughs> I already ranted on <laughs> Well, let's you know we're, we're we're going slow again. I wanted to at least get through, let, let's let's just get through these three because I think we've already talked a, a lot of a lot of these through already. Yeah. So I think we can do it pretty quickly here. Another source of theology. Uh, that that is inadequate is history of doctrine. And again, my point here is saying that the the idea of the history of God doctrine is not bad. Uh, we stand on the shoulders of of theologians who have gone before us. It took them hundreds of years to hammer out some of these finer points of theology. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. We can build on what's already there. At the same time, we just have to be concerned that those sources of the those those this historical sources don't end up trumping what the Bible has to say, and that's 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 the concern. Same with tradition or church dogma, uh, which moves a step beyond uh, the history of doctrine. Uh, which appeals to historical interpretations of Scripture in the forms of confessions and creeds. Uh, and this goes beyond to uh, supplementary canons of doctrine, such as the Roman Catholic Church uh, with its apocryphal books, the writings of the Greek and Latin Church Fathers, massive body of church councils, papal decrees. All of this then becomes as authoritative as the scripture. So that's what I mean by tradition or church dogma taking over and basically squeezing out the scriptures as as the, the ultimate source of truth. And then the, my last point there is culture. We have to be concerned uh, that culture does not define our theology. I mean, that's, that's, I mean that's, that's going on radically today, right? Yeah. Culture tells us that, you know, Homosexuality is the new natural. It's normal now. And so you've got you've got blogs and books and, and articles being written left and right by people who call themselves evangelicals rewriting their theology of man to accommodate this new cultural norm. Okay. Well you can't do that. And we're, and we're going to, and, and, and you know, once you get out there in the in the big world and you're you're, you're preaching, you're pastoring, there's immense pressure to give in to the culture uh, and and shape your theology by what the culture has to say rather than what the scriptures say. And you're going to stand very very much alone at times if you say, you know, the scripture norms culture, and no, you. And what what ends up happening is you're who's who's the bad guy in the in this debate? Well, we are. We're homophobes. 
who's the bad guy in the abortion debate? Well, it's it's us. We we hate women. And 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 so and so you're going to, you're going to suffer for doing good when you don't bow to the cultural expectations of your theology. And uh, and, and hopefully that that makes some sense. There's more to be said there. I, I and I and I and I you can you can read through some of that material. Uh, but hopefully you understand that culture cannot define your theology much as as much as it attempts to do so. Okay. Uh, which leaves us then with the one true self-validating independent source of, a th- of theology that we're going to appeal to throughout this entire course and that's the scriptures it's the only independent informing source of theology it's not the first among equals it's the only source of theology that can function independently okay? there's, there's other sources of, of information, but the Bible is the only one that stands independently. Warfield notes, there may be theological data embedded in other sources, but it remains nevertheless true that should we be confined, we, we should be to confined to a meager and doubtful theology were these data not confirmed, reinforced, and supplemented by the surer and fuller revelation of Scripture, and that the Holy Scriptures are the source of theology not only in a degree, but also in a sense in which Nothing else is. And that statement goes hand in hand with the doctrine of sufficiency of Scripture. The Bible gives us everything necessary for theology. And if alone it is sufficient, then all other sources of theology are unnecessary and are illustrative uh, of what the Bible teaches explicitly. I've got four texts here we can end with. All Scripture is God breathed so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That is, it's got everything we need. Second Peter 1, we have everything necessary for life and godliness contained in promises and prophecies, which are described here in Second Peter 1. Uh, Isaiah 8.20, this is a, this is a context here is a, of uh, of these false prophets that are that are speaking uh, uh, within the Israelite community, how do we know who's, who's who's a true prophet and who's a false prophet? That's the question, and the answer is well, to the law and to the testimony. This is how you find out. You read the Bible, and the Bible will tell you which one's a true prophet and which one's a false prophet. If they don't speak according to the word, then they have no light of dawn, because the Bible. Gives you everything you need to make to 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 test the spirits. John eight. If you hold to my teaching, then you're really my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Text wildly wild, wildly abused at times, uh, but the point here is that we have contained within the leaves of Scripture all the truth that we need, and it alone is sufficient and gives us every necessary answer uh, that we can come up to any question that we come up with uh, in the realm of systematic theology. The Bible alone is, is what we're going to appeal to as our source of theology in this class. Okay? Does that make sense? Does that follow? So, you know, you know read through these, you know, these points a little bit. And uh, I do tease out a few other 
uh, details as you work through it. But I, I think that's the substance here of what we want to talk about in this section. Okay? Any summary questions before we call tonight? Okay. We will see you next week, Lord willing.